0: Welcome to C Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. I'm your host, Scott. You may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now in its 200th episode, where we've interviewed hundreds of people business titans, celebrities, authors, very famous people. But what's fascinating is the most downloaded, interesting interviews. Are the ones that are often like you and me people that are on a similar journey in their careers which is why we decided to spin off a new podcast called c-suite conversation where each week we talk with different people from the c-suite today we have melanie harris who is the vice president of strategy and development with nike joining us melanie welcome to today's podcast
1: thank you scott i'm really glad to be here
0: hey delighted you're here you've got an amazing career i mean you've worked At Bain. I understand you did your undergraduate at Yale. You earned your MBA from Harvard, not too shabby, nicely done. You were a standout college athlete. Before we get into your professional career journey to where you are now at Nike, I'd love to talk a little bit about your academic history because it's not every day you meet someone or have a friend who both earned their way into Yale and Harvard. Talk a little bit about the path to those schools, why you chose them, what your education was in, and I also understand. You had a little time as an athlete in your undergraduate years as well.
1: Yeah, happy to. And you know, my educational journey didn't begin at Yale, although that's a fun place to start. Um, Yale was in many ways a pipe dream for me. I graduated from a very large public high school in New York where I grew up. Um, I had parents who are um, real believers in education as an opportunity to propel one's life forward. And they really my brothers and me growing up from, I would say preschool on, really encouraged us to focus on the path education could play um, in our lives. So the transition uh, from a big public school to uh, a very elite private school was a tricky one for me, Um, but one that I felt that um, I could do because of how my parents encouraged me Mm -hmm. growing up. And one thing I will say is that Yale is the only undergraduate school I applied to. I applied early, um i had visited you mentioned i was an athlete i was a track and field athlete in high school as well and i went to meets at yale when i was in high school growing up in new york and i loved it i loved the beautiful architecture it felt like another world to me from Mm. the life i had growing up and i really loved the student commitment to um like social impact uh and the, the relationship between the faculty the staff and the students it was something that was really appealing to me so the path was one i think that started early days with my parents encouraging me to not worry about kind of cost um, and not to set any limitations on myself and to really believe that I deserved to have that kind of education and that we would figure it out along the way. So that's kind of the journey. And uh, Yale really was a formative time in my life for sure.
0: And you earned your undergraduate degree in what from Yale?
1: Political science.
0: And then did you you go right to the Harvard um, Business School from there?
1: No, I worked for several years after undergrad. So I, you know, political science was uh, right in line with where I was coming in from high school, I felt like I was ready to change the world. And when you're in an environment like Yale, which uh, produces so many presidents and Supreme Court justices and all of that, um, it's hard not to be enamored by the opportunities that being involved in politics might afford one. I um, mean, I actually thought I was going to be a lawyer, um, and then I realized, as I took a look back at all the school loans that I had and the debt that my family was going into for part of my educational journey, that I probably should go out and work. And so my first job after college actually was at Abercrombie & Fitch, where I worked in store operations um, and control, so finance and operations job. And it was a real uh, fit for me because part of the way I worked my way through school and uh, made some money on the side was to work as a a retail store associate during high school and college. So going into my first corporate job, I thought about um, not coming from a family that has a huge amount of history in kind of corporate environments, what can I do that felt accessible to me, um, that felt empowering and exciting to me? And so my first job was actually a pretty entry level analyst and then associate uh, type role in finance and operations. Um, and then from there, uh, before going to business school, I left uh, Ohio where I went for Abercrombie to come back to New York. And I worked at Macy's, uh, went through the merchant training program and made men's sportswear for the private label for many years. So I did work for several years before going back to business school.
0: And then I'm not mistaken, you did some time at Bain also. I did.
1: Um, I was a summer associate at Bain during my time at HBS. uh, And then I came back full time and I was there for almost a decade where um, as is the way with Bain, I had a pretty varied and generalist career in the beginning. I worked across so many industries from private equity to technology. Um, I spent a year in Johannesburg. I worked down a gold mine, literally. Uh, down a goldmine. You know, I've had clients in the consumer products area, which is where I came from pre-Bain, in consumer and retail banking. So lots of opportunities. And beyond the the paid client work I did at Bain, I committed a lot of time to social impact work, particularly around public education, because I was public school educated uh, all the way through until I got to college. And then also in diversity and inclusion. You know, when I was interviewing for my role at Bain, I didn't see anyone who looked like me. And it was really important for me to be uh, a representative of what diversity could look like at a firm so esteemed as Bain. And so I spent a lot of my time um, with diversity efforts, both recruiting and retention uh, and and creating promotion opportunities for the more junior consultants while I was there.
0: So, Melanie, when you left Bain, you joined Nike. What was the appeal of the Nike organization to you?
1: I mean, what's not to love? (laughs) You know, I I said I grew up as an athlete. And so I've always loved sport, whether I've been engaging in sport or been a fan. Um, I come from a sport family. Um, My dad and my brothers were involved, played basketball. My husband played basketball. I was in track and field before that, soccer. So I've always loved sport. And there's no brand that is more aligned with sport than Nike. I also, early in my career, as I mentioned, was involved in retail and uh, product management and development. And so if you're gonna be in sport, the best product ever is Nike product. So I've been a fan. My uh, college team at the time was a Nike team. I still have my Yale uh, Nike track and field backpack in my office. Um, and so that was it. And then frankly, the ability to drive change um, where you know a brand like Nike has an outsized ability to be the arbiter of culture and to drive our culture and uh, our global culture, frankly, in the direction it should go. Um, and it's what I loved about strategy and my time at Bain, the ability to identify opportunities, break down the, uh, the ways to address and uh, realize those opportunities and bring them to action. And I felt like Nike, there's no better place than Nike to be able to do that in the areas that I love, with sport,
0: with product, caring about consumers
1: and changing the world.
0: So thanks for taking us on that journey. It's so insightful to see how people, you know, uh, sometimes are very deliberate and sometimes fairly serendipitous in the opportunities that are presented to them, both educationally and professionally. Let's talk about your role at Nike. You are the Vice President of Strategy and Development. Break that down for us. What does that really mean? What are you responsible for delivering to Nike in that role?
1: Yeah, on the one hand, I'm I'm responsible for our core strategy end to end, everywhere from our consumer insights and innovation around those insights, the product that we'll create, through to the actual product development, um, and how it hits the marketplace across all of our brands, Nike brand, Jordan, Converse, and now our most recent acquisition, Artifact, a a fully digital brand, Um, and, and the underlying operations that support that, whether that's technology, supply chain. Um, or logistics. And so it's a broad mandate, and we have a huge growing core, and I have a fantastic team that works together with our business leaders, our operational leaders, to pull all of that through. In addition to that, I also have the development side. We have growth in our core, but we also have opportunity beyond our core to better serve our consumers, whether that's with new products, um, new uh, opportunities, new geographies, etc. So I do spend a fair amount of my time thinking about new opportunities of growth, even beyond our core. And that's the piece when I talk about development. So my teams are thinking about the strategy of our current business, how to best serve our consumers with the best products and experiences, and then looking to the future and doing things like, where, what are those same stakeholders going to want 10 years from now? And how do we get ahead of that and make sure we're there, right there, hand-in-hand with them?
0: Millie, I'm guessing it's a challenge To be in charge of strategy when the world is changing by the day, right? Whether it be you know AI or digital uh, uh, innovations, whether it be pandemics and supply chain, or what's in vogue or not in vogue, what's your philosophy, if any, around how you create strategy in a constantly changing environment?
1: Yeah, I'm going to misquote, but I think it's uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower Eisenhower who said, you know, the best part of The plan is the planning. And so what I do tell my teams is that we're going to work hard. We're going to try to envision the future. We're going to set a vision. We're going to decide where we're going to play. We're going to set the path and how we're going to win and deliver for our consumers. But the one thing we know once we get that strategic plan on the page is that the second the ink is dry, the plan is wrong, right? The world is going to change. What you anticipated, we feel that now more than ever over these past two years, what you anticipated happening is going to be different from what actually happened. And so what you get from the planning process is a unified vision that we can all align about, align around, and then the ability, kind of flexing that muscle to be able to pivot when you need to with a certain centralized resolve. So, I mean, it is tough to to plan knowing that your plan is going to have to pivot along the way, but that muscle that we all build, both within the strategy kind of function and for all leaders who have strategy as part of their job is the key part. Um, and I look at it not as hard, Scott. I look at it as a great opportunity. And that kind of learning agility, that flexibility is what creates the winners. It's not just the strategy, it's how you can move around and execute within um, the context of all that's changing around you.
0: You know, speak to customer connection for a moment. What What is it that the best brands do, Nike of course included, to build you know, a unique customer connection, an emotional connection with your client that right now might not be going to a flagship Nike store that's five stories high or perhaps one closed or changed. Uh, What do you think the best are doing in 2022, perhaps even during or even post pandemic for whatever world that looks like? Give us some idea around that.
1: You know, staying close to who that consumer is and what it helps, it helps so many of us at Nike is that we are that consumer. And if it's not us only, it's those in our family, it's the others that we love. You know, our our consumers are people. They're just like you and me. They're dealing with the same things, they have the same aspirations and and dreams. And it's while not a monolith, we do think about a muse. Um, And even as our company, we're in our 50th year this year, um, continues to grow and you can say, you know, goes from generation to generation, that muse, that central uh, person or consumer we serve has the same ethos internally. So at Nike, we say our mission is to innovate and inspire for all athletes. And if you have a body, you're an athlete. That means what we seek to do is to find what will inspire and innovate every human to be the best they can be. And so what we do, and I suspect that any successful brand does, is keep a finger on the pulse of what's important to consumers and make sure that we can be a few steps ahead to deliver what they're going to need even before they know they need it. And so that means staying close, listening, being in the places where our consumers are, being lovers and advocates of our brand. I don't, from early in my career, when I was at Abercrombie, I wore Abercrombie all the time. When I was at Macy's, I was making men's sportswear. I still wore it. I happen to be six feet tall so I can get away with that or gave it it to the men in my life. And at Nike, I'm wearing Nike, Jordan, or Converse shoes every single day to make sure that I can be in in the shoes of our consumer and know Um, what they need, um, and and just obsess it, be really dedicated dogmatically to um, what is most important to deliver what our consumers need.
0: Hey, without sharing your trade secrets, you know, Nike is known of course for innovation and for always sort of being a step ahead of, I think, most every competitor. What can you share about the culture, the philosophy, the principles at Nike, the talent of the people that keeps innovation At your core, I mean, you are one of the fastest innovators, I think, not just in your industry, but in business today. What's unique in your culture that helps your innovation be so core to your success?
1: We love sport and we love athletes. So I said, you know, if you have a body you're an athlete, you're an athlete, Scott, I'm an athlete. Everyone listening is an athlete, but we have a close connection to the most elite athletes in the world right and so and because we love sport and, and they love sport that partnership helps us to be innovative and ahead of the curve so what we create for the world's best um olympic marathoners and race and sprinters leads the way with innovation for you and i when we want to go out and take our morning run and what we do for the world's top of the top in the nba and the wnba helps my eight-year-old son uh be prepared to take a better jump shot So, you know, we stay at the forefront of innovation by, again, being doggedly committed to athletes and to sport. And we could lead with that um, because of our commitment and connection to the most elite athletes in the world and a commitment to pull through that innovation from the elite level through to the everyday athlete.
0: Melanie, not so long ago, speaking of athletes, there was a, I think there was a famous basketball star that was asked about athletes as role models to kids. And I think that person said they did not believe that athletes should be or are role models. I'm sure everyone has a different opinion on that. When an athlete becomes a brand ambassador for Nike, however you term that, does Nike believe that they are in fact role models outside of just the brand?
1: I mean, athletes are humans and all humans set an example for someone else. Well said. So, um, you know, in short, I would say, we tend to partner with those whose values are aligned with our own. Um, And we truly believe that sport create an equal playing field. It doesn't matter where you're born, uh, what your training is, and frankly, uh, in many ways, what your ability is, which is why we have a commitment to all types of sport, including we sponsor, you know, we're connected with the Olympics and the Paralympics. We invest a lot, when you mention innovation, to, in technology that allows all people to have easier access to sport. Um, I got my 93-year-old grandmother a pair of our shoes that she can Uh, even through arthritis, get on very quickly, and that is because of innovation that we've created to make sport accessible to all. And so that means that every human, I think, should expect to be a role model to someone, whether you're um, a mom like me, role modeling to my parents, or an elite athlete who has a broader stage. And so for us and our brands and our athletes, we do like to align with folks who are believe in that concept that sport creates an equal playing field and creates opportunities for others and are looking toward progress as innovative as they want to be and as we are around sport we should also be innovating toward growth and improvement in the world Um, and so in that regard whether it's a long-standing um, you know relationship with someone who may set an example for millions of people around the world or kind of the you know high school basketball coach who may set an example for the kids who yeah. play for her. For her. Um, certainly all humans have the opportunity to be a role model.
0: Remind me the sports you were passionate about in high school and in college.
1: Yes, so in high school and in college, I was in track and field. And while I was in high school, I was a, a multi eventer which includes sprinting, mid distance, and jumps and a little bit of throws. Uh, throwing, and when I was in college, and the attempt to pick up two more events to be a heptathlete, I discovered a, a increased passion in throwing. So by the time I was at Yale, I was throwing the hammer and the 20 pound weight, and I was I had the opportunity to set the our conference and our school record in that, which was a you know a really great um, experience for me to pick up something that was relatively new to me in my late teenage years and to. Um, improve and, and deliver for my team um, in that
0: event. I have three young sons that are 7, 9, and 11, and they would love the idea that they could actually throw a hammer as a sport. What a, oh, I love that. You have that. to tell it,
1: them it's not the same hammer you use to
0: drive a nail. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, I will not be telling them any of that, trust me. Melanie, um, <laughs> what did your experience as a lifelong athlete, now there's a difference between you know Scott as an athlete and Melanie as an athlete. You may define it the same It's my podcast, I'm gonna define it differently. That's that's a compliment to you. What, from your experience as a collegiate athlete, a lifelong athlete, competitive athlete, what experience from that did you bring to your role at Nike as it relates to strategy and development?
1: I mean, for sure, the role of teaming. Um, And particularly as a track and field athlete, I won't go too deeply into how, you know, invitational meets are scored, but you have a role that you play as an individual contributor you know, I can win gold in my event and my team across the full event might still lose because of the number of medals we have. Or I might take bronze, third place, but my team can still win because of the points that I was able to contribute to the collective, um, in the collective score. And so, the couple of things that I'll take from that, and it, you know, there are so many things that are parallels, even if uh, more team sports like soccer and basketball. But with all sports, you have a role to play as an individual. You have to know your role that you are to play and play your position, right? Because if everyone's trying to be the point guard or everyone's trying to be the center, you're not gonna win the basketball game. And that's true in business too, right? You wanna know the full play, the full uh, landscape. You wanna know what it takes to win. You wanna know the rules of the game. You wanna know where you're all shooting for but you ultimately need to play your position. And I think that's important. It has been important to me from as my career has progressed from individual contributor knowing that I could be the best in the small and increasingly large roles I play, and even more so as a leader, because it it teaches me to give some leeway to my team, to be clear about the role that they play, but then let them play their position versus me leaning in and trying to play someone else's role.
0: Yeah, well said. Okay, parenting confession for a moment. I mentioned that my wife and I have three young sons. Don't do that, by the way, in five years. Mistake. (laughs) Different podcast. Stand by. Uh, parenting mistakes from Scott Miller. And I was raised playing tennis. I'm from the East Coast, and my brother and I played tennis. It was really the only sport that we played and actually became quite proficient through high school and so on. But tennis is not a team sport. I mean, on on the hierarchy of team sports, it's at the bottom, like by golf, right? Right. I guess maybe in college, and the Davis Cup, it's a team. But really, it's an independent sport. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I don't regret it at all. I'm still playing tennis in my 50s and hope to be in my 80s and 90s. I don't see too many people that are playing basketball in their 90s. I'm sure there are some, but I have uh, forced my boys to play tennis, not as their only sport, but as their kind of key skill, because I think there's so much to learn from tennis, and it's a lifelong sport, unlike perhaps some who aren't as lifelong. But what I've realized is, uh, I say forced, meaning... You can play tennis or you can take piano, your choice, right? So they're in tennis, and they're going to keep playing tennis, and they've discovered basketball recently. And uh, not my sport of choice, don't know a whole lot about it. In fact, do you know how many times the Utah Jazz have played basketball in the last 10 days? I swear, 14 times. They play like twice a day. It's insane. The basketball is never off on my TV. But it's been interesting, Melanie, to see our three boys transition from tennis, an individual sport, for the most part, almost exclusively, to these team sports. And I've realized, obviously I've done them a disservice by not encouraging them to play broader sports earlier in life. I'm learning this, they're not teenagers yet. There's time to recover from my parenting horror. But there's a ton of transition, is there not, between skills you learn in team sports and what it's like to work in any organization, which is a team sport. Yeah,
1: for sure. So let me give you a little bit of grace here. Thing one, my husband, I mentioned, was a basketball player through college. He's um, not 80, but still likes to play. And uh, <laughs> I think you're the end of that. So there's a chance to keep playing even the team sports when you're probably older than you should be playing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I left out the part of my early sport career when I was in elementary school and middle school, I played soccer. So I've seen both sides. I've seen uh, full-on team sports and then track and field, which is a more, I'd say, hybrid of individual mm-hmm. and team sport, at least up through the, the collegiate level. And what I'll say is, again, with confidence from my experience and then happening to work with lots of athletes, not just the everyday athletes, but you know, former professional and Olympic athletes all the time or in my day-to-day life, uh, you know, not the athletes that are Nike sponsored, but are truly day-to-day inline workers. Um, No matter what sport you play, there are so many transferable skills. And, you know, the other piece of grace I'll give you is that not everyone has to start their uh, introduction to sport as a kid, right? So your kids are still young. Mine are (laughs) too. There's still time for them. They may pivot one or two more times before they find the sport that they love. But what I will reinforce is for sure the value of sport at whatever age you come to it um, in developing the skills that you need in business and in life. And I will say, you know, we believe that all kids have the right to play. And so it doesn't even need to be organized sport, just this, you know, uh, or competitive organized sport. Getting out there on the field with your friends, uh, you know, if you're a kid in the playground, if you're an adult on a Thursday afternoon post-work week has so many valuable, um, you know, benefits, both from a health perspective, but certainly from a success perspective, all the things you learn about communicating in the heat of the moment, about um striving together to the same goal and as i said about playing your position on a team together to win yeah. Yeah. i think are highly transferable
0: yeah you're right about a lot of things there including the transition my oldest son has now discovered squash uh, seriously seriously squash i mean yeah. who are you gonna find to play squ- squash with you son other than me so we're actually headed to the squash court there is one in salt lake uh, this right. weekend so wish us luck Thanks, Melanie. And then to
1: Yale, beautiful squash courts. I I have
0: no doubt at Yale there's plenty of squash courts. I have no doubt. Salt Lake City, Utah, not so much, Melanie. Uh, Let's talk about the pandemic. Uh, How has the pandemic changed you as a spouse, as a mother, as a daughter? And how has it changed you as a leader? Yeah,
1: wow, that's a loaded question. Um, I'll try to take them in part. You know, I. I've been at Nike for almost three years. Most of the time I've been at Nike has been during a pandemic. And part of my coming to Nike was moving across the country. I'm from New York, my husband's from New York, our family's all in New York. Our kids, they're young, but they like to still say they're they're born and bred New Yorkers. And so we moved our, our family 3,000 miles away from, you know, quote unquote, home, with every intention of being able to get back and be that fully on, you know, as you said, daughter, or sister, I'm a sibling, or um, you know, let, them, let the grandparents enjoy their grandchildren. And then for us, like many, the world turned upside down and travel stopped um, pretty soon, frankly, after we started to get settled uh, in Portland, where I now live, where my family now lives. And so um, that made a huge impact on how we relate on a personal level to our families, um, our extended family. And then for my nuclear family, um, again, like many parents, I became a teacher at the same time as being a business executive because my children's school, like many schools, went remote for a large period of time early in the pandemic. So really understanding how we can relate in our homes, you know, as a nuclear family, as a, as a parent, that was a huge transition for, for me and for my children and frankly, too, for my husband. I mean, I you know, I spent many of my, uh, much of my Bain career traveling. So I said, you know, my husband and I got married during my game career. So now you're going to have to get used to seeing me every day and not just every day because I traveled a lot less uh, early days at Nike than I did as a consultant, but literally not leaving the house every hour of every day. You have to see me. So it redefined our, our marital relationship. Yeah, um, yeah. You really get to test, like I think so many did, uh, you know, how relationships um, happen. And then as an, ex- as an ex- executive or as a business leader, you know, everything I learned about leading teams was in person right and uh particularly for almost 10 years of consulting in person for many many hours a day traveling together with teams to clients having dinner together every night you know because we're all staying in the same hotel away from our families to being able to relate uh over zoom uh for us or over a, a, a digital forum for so many um and so really learning you know i said earlier part of the the uh, benefit of strategy is writing a plan, but then realizing it's going to be wrong. I had my plan, right? I had my strategic approach to how to lead teams, to how to be a wife, to how to be a mother, to how to be a daughter. And I had a proven playbook. And what the pandemic really did on each of those things for me, and I'm sure for so many of us, was force me to amend that. In some ways, throw some things away. In other ways, hold on to some things, but amend them. Um, and then to really listen to what my team or what my kids or what my son or what my extended family needed of me, whether it was different types of engagement, more time or more space. And I think the one other thing I'll add to that is it did add a certain level of humanity. Um, we are all seeing each other's backgrounds. Our, I don't have three kids, I have two, but I got a pandemic dog like so many of us. So we got to see each other's <laughs> puppies or newborn babies or you know um, spouse in their robe running around <laughs> across the background. And you start to realize more and more what we all knew like our colleagues are people um, but you get to see all the texture of their lives that we didn't normally get to see all the time in the workplace
0: yeah i think all of us as leaders have had to learn more empathy as a skill as an intention as a default uh uh, nicely said let's talk a bit about your leadership style Uh, melanie i'd like for you to get vulnerable for a moment which i don't think will be difficult for you and I'd like you to think about some people who have reported to you during your career. Mm -hmm. Nike, pre-Nike, that did not like you. Your detractors. Mm -hmm. Not your promoters, but your detractors. You know the term well because Fred Reichelt is a dear friend of both yours and mine, right? So we know Fred well on the MPS scale. Um, Think of some detractors, and how would they describe your leadership style? What it's like to report to you?
1: Yeah. So Scott, on the one hand, I presume trust. Um, I like to think that we've done a good enough job in every place I've been recruiting the best of the best. And so at a base level, my team members are capable. What that means is that if I uh, share a goal with them, some work I'd like them to deliver, I trust that they'll be able to do it. Um, But with that comes some opportunities for detractors for sure. Um, On the one hand, there's, you know, um, can you lean in a little bit more? Can you help me? Um, give me more um, direct instruction, to which I generally say, no, because I think you need a chance to, um, that's part of the benefits of diversity. I want you to deliver your own thoughts to which I can react. I want you to stumble a little bit of, and fall and then prove to yourself that you can do it. Now, the flip side to that is when I presume trust, and when people do fall and I lose confidence, I lean way in. So then the other hand is, um, can you give me some space? And it seems like you know two sides maybe of the same, the same coin. Um, and when I lose confidence, I, will, I can be told that I can micromanage. Mm-hmm. I'll want to know exactly what your hypothesis is on this problem we're going to solve. I want to know the precise timeline and data inputs that you're going to use and what you're going to deliver, who is accountable for each milestone, how we're going to measure success. And I'll lean way in until I feel confident again that the team member has it under control. So, you know, I think, frankly, for me, those can be seen as positives. It's how I frankly like to be led. I like to be given some rope and then I like to have some help when I need it. Um, but when I think about folks who uh, may struggle uh, and feel like they, you know, or would say that they're detractors of mine, it falls into those two camps. Either they wanted me to lean in more and I didn't because I trusted them um, or uh, they've not proven themselves yeah. to me and yeah. I've leaned into much.
0: Yeah, thanks for your transparency. The flip side of that, of course, is think of uh, some supporters, people that have uh, enjoyed working and reporting to you. What's it like to work for you from the point of view of a supporter?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm a real person. (laughs) You know, I've gotten to uh, relatively senior levels um, at places where I've been and I will still, because of where I came from, frankly, um, make myself accessible to anyone at all levels. I also am a huge advocate for my people. I believe, I think I mentioned it before in the power of representation, and there've been so many rooms, um, whether it's my core colleagues, clients I've served, where I'm the only, I'm the only woman, I'm the only uh, first generation American, I'm the only person of color, I'm the only, I may sometimes be the youngest in those rooms, and I feel like I have a, I feel a responsibility, frankly, to, um, be a voice for those who aren't at the table, many of them who I represent. And so I go hard for my people. Um, and i that's part of why I extend trust. I wanna believe that they can do it. I want them to build the, the skills within themselves and the confidence within themselves to do it. And then I will advocate for them dog—you know doggedly. I won't let uh, people to, you know, speak negatively against them unless they have true concrete evidence of something they've done or that they cannot do. Um, and so that's something that my supporters of which I will say humbly are many will say uh, about me is that I will, even if I'm giving them constructive feedback to help them develop, I will always go hard for them. I will always represent for them um, and try to create opportunities uh, for them that others may not see.
0: Melanie, talk a bit about some of your professional passions outside of Nike. Uh, I've read that you have been deeply emotionally and intellectually socially invested in diversity, equity, and inclusion issues, especially Representation on boards of directors. You yourself are a member of, I think, multiple boards. I, my wife is delighted that you are a member of the board that uh, leads Rent the Runway. We can talk about that in a moment. Talk about why it's so important, always, now as much as ever, to have diversity on boards. I know the statistics are still not where we need them to be, whether it be with gender diversity or racial or background, some other type of diversity on boards. What's happening? What does that landscape look like? And where do you see the future? What gives you hope, if anything?
1: I mean, I truly believe that businesses get the best outcome with diverse thoughts at the table. Otherwise, you perpetuate the same over and over and again. You asked before about innovation. I think one of the greatest drivers of innovation is diverse thought. And diverse thought comes from a number of things, but certainly not least of all, um, diverse experience. And that experience can be gained in a professional setting or through life. And a lot of that diversity comes through things which are representational, like gender or or sexual orientation or country of origin or racial ethnic identity or ability or place of education. When I was at Bain, I fought hard to make sure, you know, despite where I went to school at Yale and Harvard, that we weren't only recruiting from schools like that because we wouldn't get the level of diversity that we might get if we look, if we broadened the net. Yeah. Um, and so I, I truly believe um, for boards which lead uh, public and private companies, they can set the tone on what the executive and management team should look like and what the broader team should look like. And not just look like, but be like so that we can not only have representative diversity, but also have inclusion so that we're including all types of thinking um, to to drive innovation and to drive progress. So I'm really proud to be on a board, particularly uh, like Rent the Runway, which was the first company um, to IPO with an all-woman leadership team. I'm saying CEO, CFO, head of merchandising, um, the, um, the president, you know, so many um, women leaders um, being able to set the tone and not just women, women who are diverse um, by, by ethnic background, um, and who are serving so many women who uh, may not have otherwise had access to such um, fantastic closets full of fantastic clothes. Um, so that serves not just women across all uh, kind of backgrounds, but across economic backgrounds as well. And it, I think without that level of diversity on that leadership team, that Rent the Runway wouldn't be able to deliver the way that it does. And I think without the type of diversity that we have at Nike, and you said, that, you know, in many instances, there's more room to go, but we have a diverse board, we have a diverse leadership team. I don't think that without that, we would be able to deliver for our diverse set of consumers as well.
0: Speaking of which, talk about Phil Knight at Nike. I believe he now serves as your uh, chairman emeritus, so to speak, and I'm guessing you had some occasion to be with him or perhaps meet him virtually in person in your three years. What if anything from Phil? Because Phil and I are on a first name basis. What if anything do you find inspiring by him? What have you learned from him? What 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 permeates the Nike culture from Phil's legacy as the founder?
1: Yeah, I mean, Mr. Knight is an icon. Without him, we wouldn't be. Um, and he certainly sets the tone and, and sets the ethos of. Um, you know, someone who came from not the biggest city in the country or the world, um, who was a successful but maybe not the world's best athlete, who was um, had an early start in business, but maybe not, you know, the very best, who then took all those things and still believed in it himself, fostered mm-hmm. an idea, um, took some risks, calculated risks, but took a lot of risk and really stayed, you know, we're 50 years in committed to a singular mission of delivering the best for athletes. I mean, you can apply that kind of formula to anything one might want to do in life. You kind of start with it doesn't matter where you come from. I happen to be from New York. I'm from a big area, but you can be from anywhere in the world. You can have any type of background and experience. And you know what? Um, what I look to as insp- inspirational from uh, Mr. Knight is the ability to take and believe in yourself, and believe in a mission, and believe in an idea and create that in a sustainable way that now 50 years since we're still able to say we will continue to be the best for all for all athletes and um and you know he stays fresh you know going from our very first physical shoe to being on the cutting edge of what the virtual world will look like um from a both product and experience standpoint um it's it's something that is I think to be revered, to be celebrated and to be inspired by. I certainly am. I hope that um, when I reach the point, uh, whether in longevity or status where he is in his career, that people would say the same about me, that I stay committed to what I believe in. I remain confident in my ability um, to change the world. And importantly, you said, you know, um, he's involved but has get left a path for other leaders to come in and carry the torch. And I think that's an important lesson too, realizing the impact you can have, but also empowering others to carry that impact forward.
0: Yeah, nicely said. Uh, last question, we'll let you go. Uh, our founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, of course, the author of this seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, few people have read that book around the world, uh, yeah. 50 Million to be more precise. Uh, he, was, he was passionate about lots of things, including being a transition figure, that all of us in our lives have had a transition figure, someone who perhaps believed in us more than we believed in ourselves. maybe it was an elementary school teacher, maybe it was um, an uncle, maybe it was a first boss, maybe it was a pastor or a rabbi or an iman. Who's been that person in your life? You talked about your parents early on um, I'll give I'll give them a pass on this one, but you're welcome to come back to them. Is there someone beyond your parents who obviously are fundamentally responsible for your higher education focus and quest. You achieved that, certainly, and earned that. Is somebody else in your life that was a transition figure, and what happened?
1: My parents are fantastic, and they learn to be fantastic from the best who are my grandparents. Mm. So this is an easy one for me, and it hopefully doesn't feel like too much of a softball, but um, I was lucky for most of my life into my early adulthood to have all four grandparents alive, and I Mm. realize now what a privilege that was, Mm. and I have one remaining uh, living grandparent, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. And I will tell a little bit about her as a representation of all four of my grandparents. Um, So my grandmother is an immigrant to the US from a very small country island in the Caribbean. And uh, she had five children who were immigrating with her along with her husband. And they fought hard to get the opportunity to move to um, a not very privileged area in the Bronx, uh, in New York, really with the intent to create better opportunities for their children, for my mom and her siblings. And it was the same story for my father's, mm. uh, a similar story for my father's parents as well. And I think, you know, th- you know, to have my grandmother still around um, multiple generations, being able to, we spent Thanksgiving together to see her spend time with my children, and impart that same level of confidence. You can come from a little seemingly nowhere island in the middle of nowhere with um, and move to the one of the biggest cities in the world and struggle to think about how to you know pay the bills and feed your children but not let them see that and let them believe that they can truly if they work hard if they believe in themselves if they're kind to each other and to others and to themselves that they will improve their lives and get to a better position in life and have an impact and I say like having gone through my whole life having that messaging come through from my grandparents to my parents and hopefully for me to impart onto my children and to the teams around me has been truly, um, you know, I don't know if we can call it pivotal because I've been fortunate to have that from birth, but to not to feel limited by things like place of birth, um, gender, your, uh, your race and recognizing that those things exist, but also recognizing that within us, we have the strength to overcome the barriers that others may put in front of us because of, um, the situation to which we were born. So I would give all huge shouts out to all four of my grandparents, but for sure my uh, my last living grandparent, my my grandmother.
0: What a great privilege you like you say in hindsight that you do appreciate now, being able to be raised around all four grandparents. What a gift you had, as did your sister and other siblings. So. Melanie Harris, Vice President of Strategy and Development from Nike, thank you for joining us on C-Suite Conversations. What a delight to talk with you. And I love the fact that you double as also the Chief Brand Officer and the Chief Operations Officer because you know the business so well. Nike, I'm sure, is privileged to have you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Scott. And we'll see you back next week for a new conversation on C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller.